We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Providence can be so challenging to you and I in our fallen nature, can't it? We always want to find authority and control within ourselves rather than somewhere else. Today, we're reminded that providence is still providence, no matter how you wrestle with it. Wrestling with Providence. That's the subject of our time today as we continue our survey of the book of Job. Hi there, and welcome to Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Today, we spend time in the book of Job once again as we continue our survey of this amazing book. We're focusing in on chapter 21 today. It's here that we find some wrestling with Providence and how Providence wins out and why. With today's broadcast of Abounding Grace, here's Pastor Gary Wagner. Wrestling with Providence. Job here confronts a mystery that I believe every thoughtful disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ has wrestled with at one time or another. And it is simply this. Very often, What we see with our eyes in the world does not look like or make us think that God is ruling the world. It is very difficult for us to be persuaded at times that He is in fact ruling the world. We see injustices and we see the wicked prospering as Job describes it here. Yet it is the opposite of what his friends have said about the wicked. But we see the struggles of godly people. I mean, we think, well, if God is ruling the world, why doesn't he make the wicked tremble a little more often? Why doesn't he encourage his people more? Why does he treat his people, generally speaking, not always, rougher than he does the wicked, whom as Job describes them here, God's rod is not on them. He leaves them largely alone. It looks like they are having all the fun. Their merriment, their parties, their sensualities, their pleasures, these are things that are tempting to mature disciples. How much more to the younger ones in the church. That's why Paul told Timothy, flee youthful lusts. These things are particularly alluring to inexperienced hearts, which is why as parents we have to put up guards against these and participation in them by our children. But Job is in pain here. I hope you can see that from the reading that Matthew gave. He is thoroughly disgusted with his friends. They haven't even begun to understand what it is that's troubling him. And it is simply this. What do you do when it looks like 
the Lord has abandoned you. Why sometimes when godly men cry and cry and cry for what is really and truly good, does the Lord not seem to answer and grant our request? Or as many times we read throughout Scripture like Psalm 37 and Psalm 73 or our Lord's parable of Lazarus and the rich man, it seems like the wicked do indeed have it good in this life. These things were painful for Job. They were painful not because he was covered with boils, that he had lost his children, he had lost everything he had. They were painful because they were confronting him with a question of theology. Why does the world look like it does if God is in fact, and Job believed this, if God is a righteous governor. Well, there's an imperative that we simply believe God's word, that he does in fact govern the world righteously, and we cannot teach him anything. We can't give him new information. He doesn't need us. We can't begin to understand, for example, just how long-suffering he is with his enemies. Our patience lasts for what, maybe five minutes with a screaming child? His patience, oh my goodness. We think about his mercy being infinite. We think about his love being infinite. What about his patience? We don't even begin to understand or begin to be able to fathom just how righteously and wisely God governs the world. Plus, we always need to remember that whatever we see with our eyes, a day of judgment is coming. You see, Job's friends assume that God exercises such a minute judgment over every man that every single man will, shall receive in this life, sooner or later, what he deserves. Job looks at the world and says, that's not true. Many times ungodly men live to a ripe old age, and they even pass on their wealth to others. Their houses, their businesses get bigger and bigger over time, whereas Job's friends say the opposite. So what are we supposed to conclude from this? God is setting our hope on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometime read 2 Peter 3. Peter dealt with this in the apostolic church, that many people were saying things like, hey, where is Christ? He said he was coming, but he's not here. When is he coming? Why isn't he coming now? Maybe some of them even denied the final coming of our Lord. But Peter says he is coming. And we must trust and we must learn perhaps one of the hardest lessons. This is one of the hardest parts of the battlefield for the Christian life. And that is to keep oil in our lamps. That's why Jesus gave his parable of the five wise and the five foolish virgins. There's something very profound in that parable. 
Both of these groups were virgins. And it's not that one group was out partying and, you know, the other was just sitting soberly on the roadside. They were both sitting together in one group. But five of these young women in the parable kept oil in their laps. And remember, oil is the symbol of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. His gifts and His grace to us. They kept drawing hope and encouragement in the fact that the bridegroom is coming. So when he did come, and it was a long delay, the wise wives had oil in their lamps. But the foolish virgins, they fell asleep. They thought, well, he's not coming. So no need to get all uptight about this. And when he came, they were shut out. So it's a very difficult thing. You know, we oftentimes play the atheist. Just ask yourself one simple question before we run through this chapter. Did you think this week one time about the coming of Christ? Two times? Ten times? No times? If your husband tells you, ladies, hey, honey, I've been out of town for a while, but, you know, I'm coming home today. I hope you're watching for him in anticipation. Now, granted, he has told you when he's coming. But the point is, when you know he is coming, you usually get ready. You get yourself ready. You get your home ready because the husband is coming. And that's the lesson that Job comes down to, and that is, when we don't see God righting all the wrongs in this life, we do know there is a day coming when He will. Therefore, since He will, we need to get ready for Him. Get ready through faith, through trusting, and through humbly walking with Him. Job begins in verses 1 through 6 with one simple lesson, and that is, you really should be standing in awe with me. In verse 2, he begs his friends to listen. He says, I'm offering you consolations. I'm not going to criticize you. I'm not going to throw things at you like you have thrown at me. He says in verse 3, but please let me speak. Stop interrupting me. And if you are going to mock me after that, then mock on. But at least listen to me. At least try to understand what it is that I'm wrestling with. He says this is way beyond the debate between you and me. We are dealing with significant theological issues and trying to understand how God is ruling the world. And he says, that's why my spirit is troubled. I'm not simply dealing with men. I'm dealing with deep theological issues. He says, even if this was man to man, these issues would still be vexing. But he says in verse 5, be astonished with me and lay your hand upon your mouth. 
He says, I'm not making a show here. Do you think I'm grieving like this as a pretense to put on a display for you? He says, I was already on the ground weeping before you even came. If I'm a hypocrite, would I really hold on to all this this long? This is ridiculous. I have lost everything. He says, join with me. Be astonished. In verse 6, he says, when I remember everything that God has done to me, I am scared to death and trembling has taken hold of me. And Job says, in effect, to his friends, listen, you have offered me a bunch of platitudes. And they may be true in themselves and, and good and useful, possibly. But they don't scratch the surface of what is really going on here. I am a godly man. Oh, I'm not perfect. I am a sinner. God could lay a thousand charges against me. As you remember, Job said earlier in this book. You talk about God punish the wicked, but open your eyes. God doesn't always punish the wicked in this life. But what should we do when his hand is against those he loves? When he doesn't seem to hear the prayers of his people? What do we do when we have made the Lord our refuge and our hope, and yet he seems to turn on us? Job says, have I not worshipped the Lord in the midst of my calamities? Have I not all my life offered sacrifices in hope of God's mercy? He says, consider with me, my friends, God's strange dealings with and with the government of the world. This is more than a theological question because he is feeling this very personal. But it is a theological question. Theological questions are the most important questions of all, and they are the most practical questions. Now, I realize most men don't accept that, at least not anymore, because most men separate theology from practice. But with God, there is no separation, beloved. Theology and practice, theory and doctrine are all wrapped up in God's character. And that is how he rules the world. He acts according to his wisdom and, the, and his truth at all times. And when men refuse to recognize this, what happens to them? Well, they misunderstand what's really going on. And they offer bad solutions to their misunderstanding of what is going on. They offer bad solutions to all things, largely because of their bad theology, their bad views of man, their bad views of God, and their bad views of the world. And as we see in our day, this creates even more problems. It calls for more bureaucrats to rule those problems. Oh, let's just throw some science at the problem. Oh, let's throw some more money at it. Or how about some more education? Of course, liberal education. And let's throw some more laws at it. When God is telling us, just be silent and still before me. This is God's ultimate answer to Job. It is to be silent and be quiet before me and recognize you have no clue what I am doing in the world. You cannot fathom my power. 
So just be faithful to me in the little things every day. You cannot fathom the ways I'm working in every atom of the universe. You just need to trust my work and trust my promises and be silent and know that I am God who is working out all things for the good of those who love me. This is the only answer and it should be good enough for us, beloved. But look at the U.S. where men turn away from theology and where they adopt bad theology and bad views of God and of themselves and of the world. We uh, simply create for ourselves a hell on earth and bring misery to ourselves. So Job tells his friends, you should be amazed with me, not judging me, not condemning me as a wicked man. You should be amazed with me. He says, let me tell you one other thing in verses 7 through 15. God's judgments are very often delayed. Now, this is directly against what Bildad said in chapter 18, if you remember, and Zophar said in chapter 20. Joseph, Zophar, and Bildad, did you tell me that God always judges the wicked and never prospers the wicked? But if he does bless them, as Zophar stated, just kind of backing off a little bit, it is only for a while. But then he will judge them in this life. Isn't that what you said? Really? Verse 7. Haven't you seen wicked men who have lived a long and prosperous life and become old men and are mighty in power? Haven't you seen their children going up, continuing in their father's way? You tell me their children always die and are cursed. But that's not always the case. You tell me their houses always fall down, verse 9, but sometimes they're very safe from fear there. And God doesn't chasten them like he does his own people. Verse 10, their livestock gives birth. Verse 11, their little children grow like a flock and they dance. Verse 12, they love music. We even see that today, right? The world always seems to be singing something. Maybe people can't, most people can't go on for even an hour without their tunes blasting in their ears. He says in verse 13, they spend their days in wealth and they even die quickly. In other words, they don't usually languish in disease like you told me they would. Because of all this, verse 14, they say to God, depart from us. We don't need you. Religion? Come on. Verse 15, prayer? Why? Repent, you've got to be kidding me. Kidding me. Look at my life. I'm blessed. I'm doing well. Who is the Almighty that I should serve Him? You know, in all the book of Job, these eight verses are the scariest verses in the whole book, at least to me. They are much scarier than anything that Zophar or Bildad or Eliphaz have said about the wicked. Because to the degree that what Job says here is true, and I think he is correct, it means that God leaves wicked men, the non-elect alone, generally speaking, 
He gives them lives to enjoy His gifts. He doesn't warn them that His wrath is coming. There are some warnings from time to time, but Job is right. It is what our Lord Jesus said in His parable in Luke 16. God gives the wicked these things good in life, but they are not led They are not led by the Spirit to chasten themselves over their sins. Their consciences are not troubled by offending God. They boldly challenge God as we see in our culture all around us with their blasphemies. In gratitude, we don't need you, God. Thanksgiving, we don't need to give thanks to some Lord. All these things say, we don't need you, God. We don't want you. We don't want religion. We don't need to pray. We don't need to repent. You know, I think there is, there is no worse judgment or any clear indication that a man is under judgment than when he doesn't feel his need for the Lord. When God does not prick him so that he feels his sinfulness and his need to turn to the Lord, there is no worse judgment. But we doubt this. You know, the preacher says, I need to repent if I'm to have God's blessings. But have you ever thought... I know people who haven't repented, and they seem to be blessed. The preacher and the parents says, you need to be careful about making friends with unbelievers. But some say, I find my unbelieving friends nicer. I find that those who may be Christians nominally have their faith more loose. And I find that they are more fun to be around. I have friends who don't pray very much, but they live in nicer houses and they drive nicer cars than those who pray. They even seem to be sick less and have fewer troubles in this life. You see, when we judge by the appearance of things, like Job's friends did, by men's outward circumstances, and we start thinking like this, It is very perilous. It forgets what Scripture plainly teaches, that the Lord does not judge His enemies in this life as they deserve, but is even long-suffering toward His enemies. But it also shows that we have forgotten that when we think like this, one of the basic truths of the Christian faith, we must walk by faith. Not by sight. God says He treats His enemies with kindness. So what are we supposed to say to that? Are we supposed to envy them? No. Are we to want easier life like they do? No. Should we, we should fear for them and guard our hearts against the temptation of envying them. You know, this is the really strange mystery of God's providence. The heart of the whole book, the heart of Job's struggle when the Lord doesn't judge his enemies, when the Lord does not reward his children as it seems like he would. 
So what are we to conclude? When the, when the wicked, those who don't know God, though they don't love the Bible, don't confess Jesus as Lord, and everything seems to be going well for them, what are we to conclude? Are we to conclude, well, it seems like they're just getting away with their wickedness. No, we actually conclude the opposite. When God does not judge His enemies in this life, we know that a judgment is certainly coming. And so we fear for them. And we pray for God to turn them to His mercy. Well, that's all the time we have. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, the ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. It is our goal and desire that you would abound in grace through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And that is why we come to you on a daily basis. Now, as we close out our time together, we also realize that some of these messages that are presented here on Abounding Grace are well worth reviewing again at your convenience. Maybe you joined us a bit late. Well, we have copies on CD. They're just $5. Mention today's date as you call or write to us. Here's how to get in touch with us. The phone number is 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're welcome to also visit our website, learn a bit more about us. We're at reformedheritage.org. Again, reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, if you would love to partner with us, if you're feeling led of the Lord to become a financial partner with us as we continue this ministry here on this station, please write to us at PMB number 402. And the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, The zip code is 95032. Or, again, simply call us, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to join us for worship. Sunday services here at Reformed Heritage Church are at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. We meet at the Lone Hill Church, 2 in the afternoon. Directions can be found at reformedheritage.org or by, again, calling 408 Eight six six five six zero seven. We thank you for joining us and trust we'll see you again next time we get together for another broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Mm-hmm.